Hello, everyone, and welcome to the beginning of the last days. It's going to be spectacular, and we have an incredible guest today. Uh, his name is James Corbett. Before we get there, I love to read from my dad's Bible. He passed away a year and a half ago, and uh, my dad loved this word, and he has underlined it and um, done little tiny notes everywhere all through this thing, and uh, it makes me feel close to him every single time I open this Bible every show and read what he underlined. So there's barely a page that he hasn't underlined something. I flipped it open today to Proverbs 22 and verse 7 in red, my dad has underlined this and I think it's kind of true for our world today. It says, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. All right. Well, if there was ever a time in history when we see some rich dudes seeming to rule over the world, it is about now. And uh, I wouldn't be upset about it if I was one of those rich dudes and I could, you know, be in and amongst them and report on them and be a whistleblower. That would be super fun for me. But unfortunately, I'm not. I'm here stuck doing life, uh, the daily grind, reporting to you for the last three years on all the crazy nonsense that has gone on. Well, one of the people that, that reports heavily and much more in depth uh, is uh, James Corbett. The Corbett Report is edited, webmastered, written, produced, and hosted by James Corbett. He is an award-winning investigative journalist. Um, he's lectured at some of the greatest uh, universities in the world, and they have uh, very long names that are unpronounceable, so I'll let it go. Uh, he's delivered pre presentations on open source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation, and uh, he's all around somebody who delves into some of the narratives that the mainstream media might be presenting and kind of shows them to be completely rampantly false. And I appreciate him for that. And I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, perhaps seeing where we can uh, come to a meeting of the minds. And also maybe there's some things that me and Mr. Corbett might disagree on, but I don't know. I think he's worth listening to. And we have to open our minds and our hearts because some of the things that he's told us a long time ago are proving to be true. It's a little bit like the Alex Jones things where, you know, you think people are conspiracy theorists and then you find out, well, they're... They actually know what they're talking about, and it all comes true. So uh, with that, Mr. Corbett, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving us your time. I know you're over there in Japan. You are a Canadian currently living in Japan, and it's about just after 9 a.m., I think, in the morning there. That's right. So thank you for having me on. I've got my second cup of coffee in hand, so I'm <laughs> just about ready to go, and uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the conversation. Good, good. You know, first of all, I mean, there's some uh, things that you've really investigated, and I want to get into some of those, uh, some of your takes on the, the great leaders that were supposed to be saviors of America. Um, I loved your work on Obama and what, what you showed there. Um, also, you know, um, what you have uncovered about 9-11, uh, that is giving us all cause to think and to re-examine what we thought really happened there. But um, I'm wondering if you see an awakening going on because as we are uh, learning more and more every single day, we're figuring out that if if they could kill uh, the president, uh, President Kennedy, the CIA seems to have been outed being part of that and all of these people are dead. But we finally find out that some very evil things have been done by governments and politicians 
uh, we're beginning to lose hope that we can trust anyone in this world. And so um, is there, um, after you've been reporting all of this stuff, are you seeing an awakening of the people to the truth? I am. And that isn't uh, just uh, pie in the sky wishful thinking. I get to see that every single day because I have been talking about these issues for 16 years now. And I can say that although there were certainly there was a lot of interest at various stages along the way, um, for example, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, there were a lot of people waking up to the monetary paradigm or uh, various events like that. But I think the the events of the past few years and all of the craziness that we have seen has really sent more people than ever down the proverbial rabbit hole and discovering that what we have been told, the picture of reality that has been painted for us by the corporate establishment media is not an accurate reflection of the world that we're living in. And that is an obviously very disorienting experience for a lot of people. I went through it myself almost two decades ago. So I know what that experience is like. And did you? I have nothing but sympathy for people who are just discovering the rabbit hole at this point in time, because we are so far down a very dark and deep ad agenda that um, it becomes more and more difficult to wrap your mind around and then to conceive of what we can do about the problem as we go forward in time. So how did it happen for you? What, what was some of the first things that you went, oh my gosh, everything I've known is not true and I can't trust people? Right. So, so retroactively, I can look back at my biography and I can identify various times throughout my life where I realized that, oh, I was always questioning authority and trying to f see the, the deeper picture that was being occluded from my vision through my miseducation in the public schooling system and what have you. Um, but I, I guess realistically, the the turning point for me was in 2006, and I was here in Japan, a lowly English teacher who, um, a very mundane event, I moved into a new apartment here in Japan, and that apartment came with an internet connection. It was the first time I'd had an internet connection in my home for a few years, and I, I was just discovering all of these new new things that were coming online th these those days. For example, YouTube was still a relatively brand new thing at the time, and still relatively the wild west of the internet at that time. And so I could watch anything I was interested in to my heart's content. And I'd always been interested in politics and news. So I gravitated to documentaries and things along those lines. And I started to encounter all of these crazy, unbelievable, outlandish 9-11 conspiracy theories, which of course would generally make me roll my eyes. And once in a while, I would click on one of these silly videos just out of almost a sense of, oh, let me, let's see what the crazies are saying today. And to be fair, there were a lot of crazy videos about flying orbs did 9-11 and, and nonsense like that. But every once in a while, I would click on something, uh, excerpt from a documentary or a documentary itself, and it would make some point that sounded outlandish to me. But once I, I thought, uh, that can't be true, that can't be real. And I would research it for myself and discover Oh, it really is true. For example, Operation Northwoods, which was uh, signed off on by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, put on President Kennedy's desk in 1962. Um, and it was a plan to stage terror attacks in the United States, including up to killing American civilians as a way of staging a, a pretext for an invasion of Cuba. And that was, uh, this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. You can go read the document for yourself where they're talking about the various ways that they could gin up some sort of war with Cuba. And thankfully, at the time, President Kennedy said no. He fired the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And, uh, well, we saw what happened to Kennedy. 
But uh, that was an example of a piece of information, a specific identifiable document that I could go. And since this is the amazing internet age, I didn't even have to go to a library or do any sort of you know hard research. I just went online and looked up the actual document itself, read it for myself and realized, oh, why have I never been taught about things like this in history class? And from that point, it was the uh, the proverbial falling down the rabbit hole. It was the snowball rolling downhill. Once you start into the research and you start seeing things for yourself, you can't unsee it. And so from that point, it was just a, a, a question of, well, what do I do with this information? I have to start spreading it to other people. And that's how I came to start the Corbett Report. Right. And, uh, you know, so you were kind of uh, ahead of everyone else because there's still people that totally would think, that the mainstream media narrative of 9-11 was true or, or they haven't seen anything, they haven't seen your your uh, documentary and they might not know anything about it. And I personally am, it's kind of embarrassing because, you know, there was this younger person than me trying to tell me that 9-11 was, you know, something very nefarious happened with, you know, big, big names um, and collaboration with the United States. And I just read him the riot act. I, I was having none of that. I believed our country. We have good leaders. We have, you know, Christian politicians running this country who would not be involved in all of this. And, um, and so now I look back and after everything that I saw also on your nine 11, um, documentary, uh, some of those things were very, very, uh, disturbing to me. And, you know, I now, I think I now have a clearer picture that we've been had. One of the things that you showed, if um, if you could give us a few of the key points that you discovered, it was all about, I was shocked to find out that there was a large amount of trades that were done um, that people actually seemed to know that there was a, a bad thing coming and they dumped stock and they did all kinds of crazy stuff. Yes, exactly. Let's get into it. So for people who don't know, this is a documentary that I did back in 2015 called 9-11 Trillions, Follow the Money. And it's up for free, completely free, like all of my work at CorbettReport.com slash 911 trillions. And in that documentary, I start from the very, very simple premise. Okay, follow the money. That's what we always hear about any criminal investigation, right? And 9-11 was at base a crime. That is what happened. Some sort of crime happened. So how do we find out more about this crime and who committed it and for what reason? Well, well, let's follow the money. And so I look at various ways that uh, we can uh, follow the money of the 9-11 money trail. And one of those that came up in the early days of the 9-11 investigation and was openly reported on in the mainstream establishment media as well was the, uh, the advanced knowledge uh, uh, trading that was demonstrably taking place on 9-11. And I say or before 9-11, I should say. And I say demonstrably because uh, obviously there was there was suspicious trading that was going on that was being invented, uh, investigated. Uh, the largest SEC investigation in history, at least up to that point, um, was opened on the case. Uh, in the days and weeks following 9-11, it was talked about on ABC News and other mainstream programming. And uh, then the story kind of went away for most people. But most people do not know that it has been confirmed, not, not by one, not by two, but by three separate peer-reviewed research papers in economics journals over the past several years that, yes, there was, there was advanced knowledge 
uh, trading that was taking place with a statistical probability of something on the order of 99%. So yes, there was advanced knowledge trading taking place. Well, who was trading on these attacks? Uh, not only, as most people I think probably know, there was uh, put options placed on some of the airlines that were involved in uh, the events of that day, but um, for example, call options on Raytheon and other military contractors who ended up benefiting from that and 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 others, um, financial institution services, uh, companies that were in had their headquarters in the World Trade Center that were affected by that day. So there was a number of advanced trades that were made. And the SEC officially, if you go to the 9-11 Commission report and actually read it, which most people don't do, but probably should do if they have any interest in this area at all, if you go and read it, they say that, Ultimately, they couldn't figure out how these these hijacker guys were being financed, but that's of little practical significance. And oh, what happened to that largest SEC investigation of all time? Oh, that's right. They uh, they they closed the case, and in the the nine eleven commission report, they say that it was tied back to this traitor who didn't have any demonstrable ties to Al Qaeda. And therefore, it couldn't have been related to the attacks. And they closed the case at that point. And years later, a researcher tries to get those SEC investigation records via FOIA request and is told, no, sorry, they were destroyed as part of routine record keeping. So, oh, well, there's the end of that rabbit hole, right? Well, uh, various researchers have uh, dug into that uh, over the years. And one of them is Kevin Ryan, who managed to unredact part of a document that was part of the 9-11 Commission investigation um, that involved uh, FBI and SEC agents who were talking about that investigation. And he managed to identify uh, Wirt Walker III as one of the people who had been identified as being involved in these trades, who is an interesting character, who uh, is a distant relation to George Bush himself, um, but perhaps more importantly, was involved in some of the companies that were involved heavily in the events of that day. Um, providing security to uh, to some of the, uh, the, uh, the airports and other places that were involved in those events. So it's a it's a really crazy rabbit hole. And um, as you point out, um, what almost nobody, even people who have talked about this and, and thought about it for a long time, know is that in fact there were there was evidence of massive and unreported, uh, largely unreported, uh, increase in trading volume that was happening as the attacks were taking place, there was a large spike in trading volume that was happening. And a lot of that information was being routed through the World Trade Center, of course. And we have some insight into that from some of the recovered hard drives from the World Trade Center. There was a German company called Convar that was hired to go through those hard drives and to extract what data they could. And they talked about the incredible process that it was to try to get information out of these almost pulverized hard drives. And they talked in the early stages of that investigation about the fact that they were discovering, yes, there was a massive increase in trading that was happening that day. And it could have been just everyone in America decided to go shopping that day or something, but the size and volume increase seemed extremely anomalous and was unaccounted for. But that investigation ultimately got sidelined. Uh, the FBI never talked about it again. And again, like so much of this other money trail, interesting information, it just disappeared from the news radar. And th there was a fellow, uh, which I thought this was so interesting. Um, is it Kevin, uh, Kevin Ryan? Is uh, is he the one that was maybe a part of um, 
there, there was a fellow, I'll see if I can grab the spot here, but basically, um, whoops, just a second. Uh, You're referring to Richard Grove? Yeah, maybe Richard Grove. He's the one that, that said that uh, something happened, um, or Robert Baird, Robert Baird. He said ah, that yeah, there was right. somebody that had reported that... Um, that the day before, somebody went in and said, it's all blowing up tomorrow, sell everything I got. Uh, tomorrow yeah. is going to be the bad day. Yeah. Yes. For people who don't know, Robert Baer is uh, an ex, quote unquote, CIA agent um, who is uh, fairly well known in the public eye. He's hosted various television programs. He's a frequent commentator on news programs. He was the person that they based the George Clooney character on in the movie Syriana. So... Definitely someone that I think is uh, familiar to the, uh, the public. And in at an event uh, in Los Angeles in 2008, he was cornered by some independent journalists, of course, not anyone associated with the establishment media who wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. But uh, he said that uh, uh, I know the guy that went into his bro broker in San Diego and said, cash me out. It's going down tomorrow. Um, to which the person interviewing said, really? That tells us something. And he said, well, his brother worked at the White House. And then he walked away. And you know what's very strange? In the 15 years since this conversation was recorded, not a single establishment media journalist has ever followed up with Robert Baer about this. Now, Robert Baer being a quote-unquote ex-CIA agent, I don't necessarily trust him. I don't necessarily simply believe him just because he's saying this. But the fact that he said this on the record, on camera, seems like it would be worthy of a follow-up. Because if it were true, he is talking about a, an accomplice before the, uh, before the fact to the greatest terror attack on U.S. homeland in history. Uh, you'd think this would be a pretty important thing that people might want to follow up on, but apparently not. Well, that is the shocking part, and, and that is exactly what happens. This is the fellow right here on screen right now. And, uh, and, and he did say that I listened to it out loud. Anyone can go to this, uh, uh, incredible documentary. And as James has said, you can get it for free and, uh, you'll be able to, uh, hear it for yourself. They never seem to investigate those that are, um, telling the, these truths. They, they always seem to leave critical facts unchecked. I mean, Look at what we're seeing with January 6th and Ray Epps. Ray Epps, um, you know, until most recently, they kind of, you know, wouldn't deal with the fact that he was telling everybody to head tomorrow. We will go into the Capitol, right? But they, it really had to be pushed and pushed and pushed by Tucker Carlson before anybody would actually uh, interview Ray Epps, who now says, of course, oh, everyone's destroyed my life and I have nothing to do with it. Um, but... Uh, these things are very interesting, and I guess they thought that all of the data would be destroyed. But how did they, with all the trades that were going on day of the attack, some of that data was literally being stored and kept inside the World Trade Centers, I believe. And so they thought they'd get away with it because it's all going to blow up. That seems to be the, uh, at least from what we can go uh, with regards to the information that we have, that seems to be part of the operational process of what went on. And we can get that from a couple of diff different angles. One of which uh, is someone that I feature in the documentary called Richard Andrew Grove, who was working for a company called Silverstream Software. 
um, to create an electronic connection between Martian McLennan and its financial clients um, through paperless transactions, which obviously doesn't sound that um, exciting at this point. But back in the year 1999-2000, when he was uh, handling this contract, was a a big deal. In fact, I believe Martian McLennan even ended up winning an award for this technology because it was so cutting edge and so interesting. He was working on this at that time and started to notice uh, anomalies in terms of the way that he was uh, receiving or not receiving the commissions he was supposed to be receiving on this. So he ended up um, uh, getting fired and there was this, there was a, a back and forth that went on in a legal suit and what have you. But long story short, he was actually scheduled to be in a meeting. There was a meeting that was called of various people involved in this case um, that was going to be taking place in the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And thankfully for him, Richard Grove was stuck in traffic that day, ended up being late for the meeting. And by the time he got there, well, things were already progressing at the World Trade Center. So he didn't make it to the meeting. Everyone else who was in that meeting physically that day ended up dying in the towers. However, the person who actually called the meeting um, was... Uh, 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 participating by telephone, so was safe fr- in another location but from a safe enough. place. But right, exactly right. But the Marsh um, story is, I think, one of the windows into this, um, and I have more information about that in the documentary. I also have some testimony from Michael Rupert, who was a researcher who wrote one of the first books, really, on the subject of nine eleven truth, called "Crossing the Rubicon," and he uh, was talking about the. The director of um, uh, the, the trades source backed to um, someone named Buzzy Krongard, who is an interesting character, who, in addition to being um, uh, the uh, the director of uh, uh, Deutsche Bank, Alex Brown, which was uh, he was the chair of that firm until 1998. And oh, by the way, he was also the uh, executive director or a, a consultant to the executive director of the CIA. So again, these, these uh, it, connections keep swirling around um, intelligence, the, the, fi- the connection, the nexus between connect, uh, intelligence and fi- finance services. And we see that throughout this story and it continues um, uh, through the story of Indira Singh, which is, and P-Tech, which is a, just a whole other rabbit hole that, again, most people have never heard of that has incredible relevance to the um, the financial side of this story. Uh, for people who have never heard about it, P-Tech was this firm that was uh, providing enterprise architecture software, risk management, essentially, um, that they promised they'd be able to go into an organization, even a large organization like a major bank like JP Morgan or a government agency, um, create a complete map of all of their systems and processes um, digitize it so that it could all be overseen at a moment's notice. And it was so advanced that it would be able to predict things that were about to happen, given the type of activity that was taking place, which for, say, a risk management consultant at J.P. Morgan, like Indira Singh, is obviously very important uh, tech, t- uh, technology to have um, to be able to monitor, for example, is is someone doing some anomalous trading inside our, our bank or what have you. Um, so she was very interested in this and pursuing it, but started to encounter some of the very strange connections of some of the P-Tech investors and officers and people that were involved in this company um, that traced back um, to, for example, people who supposedly had, uh, were writing um, homages to Osama bin Laden and other such things. What on earth is going on? And it turned out P-Tech 
in fact, was heavily, heavily involved um, with U.S. government contracts, um, contracting with a number of agencies, the IRS, NATO, the Air Force, the Naval Air Command, Department of Energy and Education, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most interesting connections that Indira Singh found was that on uh, on the morning of 9-11, throughout the period of 2001, uh, p was involved in a project with MITRE Corporation to examine the interoperability of FAA and Pentagon and NORAD systems um, in the event of an emergency like a hijacking. What is the escalation process? How is this handled? And so it turns out p was actually working um, in the essentially stationed in the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11, looking at FAA systems. And according to Singh, the, ca- the capabilities of p were such that anyone who had access to that software and was operating it on a system that p was inhabiting would essentially have almost a godlike control over those systems, be able to, for example, insert false radar blips on screens, which, oh, by the way, just happens to be an incredibly important part of the story of what happened on 9-11 and why the air defenses failed so miserably that day. And I talk about that in a whole different documentary I did back in 2018 called 9-11 War Games. Wow. And and so basically, um, you know, if this was undertaken by a, a number of people, you can see that the word would have gotten out. Like, how hard is it to keep a secret just for your own family, Right. So imagine that something as big as this, you'd have the pilots, you'd have the people involved in collaborating with this, you'd have uh, the the information would get to those that that it mattered to financially, so you'd have all the traders understanding what kind of stock is going down and what's going to fly high as soon as this is done. And this would be like uh, blowing a dandelion in the wind and all of that information would go to a lot of different people and so it would get to ears you know, that would be interested in all of this. And it would be impossible to keep it so quiet. And so um, I heard that on that day that there were celebrations of people that looked like they were from the Middle East uh, dressed in that kind of, um, you know, uh, clothing that were celebrating that day. And, And people filmed them from their balconies and such. And I always thought, well, how... Why? How would they be out there celebrating? What what would they think was going on? And of course, a lot of people must have known what was going on. Do you feel ultimately that it was Osama bin Laden and his um, cohorts that that were definitely involved, but that it then extended to a lot of other people? I think the probably the best analogy for looking at an event, a deep state event of any kind, let alone one of the, the importance of 9-11, is the Russian nesting doll idea. And I'm not referring to Russia being part of this. I'm saying the idea that, yes, there there was a uh, an element of things that were happening that involved what we think of as al-Qaeda. And that involved the, for example, as is starting to come out now, the participation of Saudi intelligence. And some of that is coming out with regards to the the 28 pages and some of the revelations from that and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But that's just one layer of this doll. And I think there are other layers that have to be taken into account. So if you really want the the real deep dive, I did a five and a half hour documentary on 
Al-Qaeda, what that organization was, how it came together, and what was attributed to it, and what we know about it, and all of that. So uh, people who are interested in that, again, completely available for free, CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda, five and a half hour documentary on that. But um, yes, I think there was an element of what we think of as Al- Al-Qaeda, I refer to it as Al-Qaeda, um, that, that was involved in that. Um, I don't ultimately put um, culpability for the events of that day on that because of the other, all of the other things that, that are related to this. In fact, even as the 9-11 Commission report admits, well, yes, we did find no, uh, evidence of advanced knowledge of advanced trading on the events, but it didn't tie back to Al-Qaeda. So it couldn't have anything. Wait, well, who did it tie back to? And how do they have any foreknowledge of what's going what on about, there? Doesn't that seem like an important piece of the puzzle? Right. What or, about or, Donald for example, Rump- Rumsfeld? Yes, uh, you know this is an uh, such an important part of the story. So this is this is why it's called nine eleven trillions because we've been talking about no- advanced knowledge trading that presumably resulted in millions of dollars and uh, of of profit for somebody. But trillions refers to the two point three trillion dollars that was missing from the Pentagon's coffers that Donald Rumsfeld was talking about on the day before. 9-11, on September 10th of 2001, there was a press conference in the Pentagon where, did you know, on September 10th, 2001, the Secretary of Defense of the United States, Donald Rumsfeld, declared war on Al-Qaeda, on Osama bin Laden, on international terrorism? No, on the Pentagon's bureaucracy, because it seems we can't account for $2.3 trillion. Um, now, a press conference like that presumably would generate quite a bit of attention on pretty much any other day in history. But coming as it did in the afternoon of September 10th, 2001, it ultimately didn't get much play in the 24-hour news cycle the, uh, the next day for some reason. Wow. Anyway, um, that's just one aspect of that story that, in fact, of course, it didn't start on September 10th, 2001. As I play uh, clips of in the documentary, in uh, Rumsfeld's uh, confirmation hearings when he was uh, before the Senate in January of 2001, they were talking about this. It was an already known phenomenon that uh, P- Pentagon accountants had been unable to account for $2.3 trillion in the year 2000. In fact, even that is a bit of a fudge number because uh, of the seven, I think $7.3 trillion of the budget that they were investigating, they couldn't discover what had happened to the $2.3 trillion. There was another $1.8 trillion that they just didn't even bother to try because they, the, the books were such a mess. And that number has increased over the years. Uh, the Pentagon still is unable to perform uh, its basic actual uh, legislative duty to uh, to create a, 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 f- a finished f- uh, budget audit. Um, they've still never been able to do that, even though they are actually legislative, legislatively um, uh, uh, conjoined to do so. But uh, now that number, well, it rose to $19 trillion at uh, some point in the past several years. And as I've talked about with Catherine Austin Fitz and Dr. Mark Skidmore of Solari.com. I've had a couple of interviews with them where they talk about some of the new Pentagon or the U.S. government um, accounting rules called FASAB 56, which actually puts the the entire uh, budget, including the Pentagon and any other agency of the U.S. government, into essentially a big black hole where for national security reasons, they are allowed to actually lie, to actually make up numbers. And there's absolutely no way that any person on the outside could ever see in to see what's going on. So really, 
We don't know how many trillions of dollars have just gone completely missing from the Pentagon's coffers. But you would think this would be a pretty big story, especially when on September 10th, 2001, Rumsfeld got up and said, you know, you might you might ask, how could the uh, the department, uh, the the secretary of defense declare war on the Pentagon or, or, or something along those lines? Again, I have the exact clip in the documentary for people who don't know, believe me, but there it is. And um, that's a sto- aspect of the story that almost never gets mentioned. Wow. Well, um, so when you think about um, all, all of the lies that we're currently being told, when you see this whole COVID narrative that unfolded and the lies that were every day being exposed uh, that were complete fallacies, doctors coming forward in horror at the amount of people that have died and everything um, from the shots, not the COVID, um, and, and you see the Hunter Biden laptop thing, you know, I mean, I remember getting, you know, sanctioned on my YouTube for talking about it and it was Russian disinformation at the time, but now, it, oh, it's a free for all. Cause I guess maybe they want to, I don't know. They don't care about Biden anymore. Right. There's a lot of, um, incredibly world historical events that are taking place right now. And I think the frequency of those events are, are, are increasing as we move forward in time, which is why I do have such sympathy for people who are only just discovering uh, the rabbit hole at this point. Um, it was, I guess, in a way, although it didn't feel like it at the time, but I guess it was a more sane time to be looking at this a couple of decades ago. Um, now it seems completely insane. And let me add to the insanity because, uh, hey, I when I was coming out in 2007, 2008, 2009, talking about 9-11 truth, uh, there were a lot of people who thought I was totally out to lunch. Well, now uh, people can think I'm totally out to lunch by talking about where we're heading right now because what we have seen over the course of the past few years is the in- induction of the biosecurity state, the idea that unelected, unaccountable health officials are going to have uh, in- enormous, incredible power to mandate medical interventions, uh, experimental, whatever, just stick it in you. you, you need to do it. Or to lock you in your home, all of these things that sounded completely dystopian that, by the way, I was talking about in a 2009 podcast I did on the concept of medical martial law. Well, that seems unfortunately to have come startlingly true. So here's the next steps in this agenda. What we're talking about with regards to these shots, of course, is not vaccines like we have ever known them. It is modified RNA that is being injected into people to literally reprogram the software of life as was openly talked about by Moderna back in the late part of the 2010s, back uh, when it, before it had ever produced any sort of uh, product that would go to market. They were talking about reprogramming the software of life, i.e. your mRNA being used to program your body to create certain proteins and other such things. This is unfortunately more than just a, an innocent metaphor, I think they really are attempting to re-engineer the human, the human species, essentially, ultimately, um, with increasingly invasive medical technologies that are blurring the distinction between the human and the digital. And again, sounds crazy when it's coming from some no, nobody in Japan. Who's this guy? So don't take my word for it. Take uh, Policy Horizons Canada which is an interesting arm of the Canadian government that most people have not heard about. It's a future think and do tank or whatever they call themselves um, that published a document in 2020, I believe, on biodigital convergence. 
So look up that document and start to read it and talk about or think about the way that it is uh, uh, putting this uh, idea of this technology that is essentially going to merge man and machine um, that what they're talking that, about uh, as some sort of... What's that website again? Policy? Uh, Policy Horizons Canada. And I don't have the yeah. exact uh, address off the top of my head, but right? if you search that and biodigital convergence, here. Mm-hmm. you will be able to find the document. I've written about it as well. And uh, if you read through that document, they're talking about the breakdown of the idea of vitalism, which is the philosophy that there is a distinction between organic and inorganic matter. I.e., there is something called life that is different than this inorganic matter. But they're going to these technologies are breaking down that distinction. Man, machine, man, machine, take the brain chip. It'll be good for you. Um, again, this is part of the agenda. And I think we are, what we've seen over the past few years is really just the induction into this new narrative that is going to be thrust down our throat towards the trans agenda, trans, transsexual, no transhuman agenda. Well, all of it, uh, ties in and the UN agenda 2030, um, hits on a lot of these things and Yuval Noah Harari considered the prophet to the WEF openly talks about it. I mean, he says the most ridiculous, crazy stuff and he means it. And they all mean it that we will be, we will be elevated to be like gods really in our, you know, in our wisdom. And, and basically if you can take your body and inject some sort of, you know, brain capability of a machine, you know, won't we all be better off? Um, is this the uh, Policy Horizons Canada? I see the Government of Canada signed there. Am I at the correct place? That is it. And they do have a document. Um, and if I, they had one from 2020, I believe, and they followed it up, I believe, last year with an with an update. But um, yes, search Biodigital Convergence and you'll find their, their own documents talking about this. Right. And, and this is coming closer and closer to um, to reality with you know, the implementation of the digital ID, which will start controlling, you know, all of our money and perhaps our medical information and putting it all in one place. I mean, we're, we're about to have a big wake up call because what if we don't want to participate in all of that? That is really, uh, I well, I'd say the million dollar question. I don't know, inflation trillion dollar question. Actually, that's the question for all the marbles because we are talking essentially and I know this might sound extremist, but it's it's true. I think we're talking about the potential extinction of the human species, um, at least in terms of the modification of humans into something that is not human. And I, again, please do just don't just take my word for this. Please do read documents like the Biodigital Convergence document and many others that are being produced by many other government agencies that are talking about um, where this is ultimately heading. And I think unless and until we start to recognize this agenda, we'll have no ability to resist it whatsoever. Because as you say, something that's as seemingly innocuous as digital ID, I think most people still to this day still have a bit of unease about this idea of this digital ID that's going to be following us around everywhere and tracking everything we do and that the government will have some process of stewarding over. But don't worry, guys, we we, we value your privacy and your information and etc etc i think most people with their heads screwed on straight can at least have their spidey sense tingling at that idea but i still don't think people really appreciate just how deeply disturbing the uh the entire concept of digital id is or how 
ultimately, it is fundamental to the playing out of this agenda, the biosecurity agenda, the transhuman agenda. Um, they do need to essentially centralize our life and our activities and our transactions and our movements and all of this data into a single point at which uh, that can be digitally accessed and ultimately tied into a social credit system that can be tied into your digital uh, currency that can be turned off or on at a moment's notice. And again, things that would have sounded really outlandish conspiracy theory even a couple of years ago. Well, hopefully Canadians have some sense of what that might mean now that we're post-freedom convoy. So I worry about myself. I worry about, uh, you know, that um, I don't have politically correct views or acceptable views to my prime minister. I believe in life. I think that little babies in the womb should be protected. Um, I, I believe that we are male and female and there's no such thing as transgender. Perhaps it's a state of mind in a person that's uh, unhealthy and needs to sort it out, but I do not want my children ever told that they can switch their sex out and that they should go on any kind of drugs or get gender affirming operations and have their parts removed. I don't believe in none of that. I'm not putting up with it. I won't be silent about it. But one day, uh, when we've got a digital ID, maybe I'm not allowed to shop at Costco anymore. This is the nightmare scenario that is coming into view right now. And as I say, I don't think you need a lot of imagination to see how this could play out. And I would just ask if there are any skeptical people in the audience who still don't understand the point of this and who, I guess, are on Team Trudeau and think that everything that the liberal government is doing is just fine and dandy. And it's a good thing they they seized the bank accounts of those protesters and they're, they're uh, subjecting police officers who donated $50 to the convoy to um, hours of unpaid work for uh, community service for their crime of donating to the wrong political cause, et cetera, et cetera. If you think all of that is just a-okay and fine by me, well, then can you imagine, just imagine, if some government that you didn't like got into power and started doing those types of things against people like yourself and whatever it is that you believe, that, of course, is the level of political imagination that unfortunately seems to be lacking for most of the population. I guess it's been trained out of them over the years. I don't know. But at any rate, yeah. yes, this is the nightmare scenario. And we are talking about a nightmare scenario, a society where literally your ability to buy and sell could be turned off and on with a flip of a switch. Almost quite literally, someone at some central location can decide, oh, Citizen X hasn't been acting right today. Oh, yeah. shouldn't shouldn't have gone there. Shouldn't have talked to that person. Shouldn't have bought that product. You're done. And at, at some point in the near future, it may be possible to completely and utterly sever you from the, uh, the, the monetary system as it exists. And uh, unless we are cognizant of these problems and the way that our, we're, we're trending, how could we ever possibly hope to overcome them? Right. And, and I, I laugh when you say, you know, that it seems like, I mean, this is a big imagination that a lot of people don't have. And I guess that's the awakening is that people have to understand we've actually come here five years ago. I was just living a blissful life and I had no idea that we could get to this place. If I were to see, in, you know, suddenly into the future about what's happened already, uh, people losing their jobs. I couldn't eat at a restaurant for months, you know, put a damper on our whole you know, dating, uh, me and my husband's, uh, you know, we have date night and we couldn't have our date night. And, you know, the only way he gets a good meal is by eating out. And so that was, that was very problematic in this house. 
But I wouldn't have never seen that we would be treated like second-class citizens just because we wanted bodily autonomy and we thought that we could make our own decision about, you know, what risk or, or you know, what situation we want to put ourselves in. And so the Great Awakening maybe is about people figuring this all out. And also, what do you make, um, Mr. James Corbett, as the one who researches so diligently? Do you think that we're in trouble from... Is, is Klaus Schwab at the top of this, or is there people, names, and faces that we have not yet seen that are kind of pulling some strings in our world? It's an excellent question. Let me put a pin on that, because I want to talk just a moment for about the, the Great Awakening and, and what you're talking about there. Yes. I think it is, part, of, part of the core of what I've been doing for 16 years now um, is talking about the fundamental political um, stage play that is taking place that people have been trained to believe accurately reflects reality and the nature of power in our society, that um, people place great faith and hope in politicians and specifically in the left-right political paradigm that, okay, there's there's these evil guys who are on the, whatever, the red team, and I'm a blue guy, so the blue team is good, and whatever they do is good. And I think that binarized system of thinking, of understanding the world has gotten people trained to the point where anything that happens um, under their their rule of their color, their team is for the good. And oh my God, you know, a few years later, so the, the, the red team got in power and now they're using these very same powers. Um, it is laughable um, from a, uh, a large 30,000 foot perspective. Unfortunately, we are human beings living through this nightmare as it is playing out. So I think part of the Great Awakening is understanding that the, the left-right paradigm that we've been given is not a true and accurate representation of reality. It isn't, at the very least, there is another dimension, the up-down dimension of authoritarian versus libertarian, of people who are interested in human freedom, my freedom to, to do and say and act as I please, as so long as it doesn't breach your rights, and versus the people who think that we need top-down centralized control of a powerful clique in a few hands that will be able to um, essentially, as I say, turn people, uh, their ability to buy and sell off and on. That's where this is ultimately heading. So I I'd like to think part of the awakening is understanding that there's a much more complex political reality going on here. And part of that is the uh, you, uh, what has been talked about as conspiracy theory. No, I, I would say conspiracy realism, which is that there are... The amazing, the incredible, the unthinkable idea that there are rich and powerful people with positions of immense power over financial and governmental institutions who are interested in expanding and preserving their power. Wow, what an, oh, you're crazy. That doesn't exist. It's just, of course, it has existed throughout every time in human history. Um, but uh, some people like to think that we live in some special pocket of history where that doesn't happen anymore. Um, I think that speaks to the other part of your question. Klaus Schwab at the moment is just the most cartoonish and obvious example of that mentality of a would-be ruling clique of oligarchs, essentially, that think that they have the ability to run the world. Um, and I do not think that Klaus Schwab pulls the strings and sets the world agenda. I think he is the front man. And I, I think to a certain extent, he's a huckster who uh, is promoting his brand, the World Economic Forum brand. And to be fair, I think he's been pretty good at it over the past several years, branding, taking ideas that are definitely out there amongst the oligarchical class about the transhuman agenda and other such things and rebranding it. So now it's the fourth industrial revolution. It's the great reset. These other ideas that are becoming part of the, the, the lingua franca, really, of 
of people around the world has been branded by Schwab and his min minions at the World Economic Forum. But I don't think they're the ones setting this agenda. If we want to start identifying who are these people in positions of power, we could just take their own word for it. Um, for example, I, I often point back, I believe it was in 2008, that uh, uh, David Rothkopf, who was the head of Kissinger and Associates, he was the chief editor at Foreign Policy and other institutions like that, um, wrote a book called Superclass, um, where he identified there's, a, there's about 6,000 people in various positions who are able to enact a transnational agenda. They don't, they're not necessarily people in government, but they are able to uh, influence and affect policies that will uh, start influence the world and the shape of the world to come. And he was bragging about this. You know, this is a good thing. These, these international global actors who are capable of superseding national sovereignty, essentially. And this is a good way to, to steward over the world. Well, okay, let's just take them at face value. Okay, so let's start identifying these 6,000 people and how do they operate? And how does, how does that power structure um, uh, operate? And, and does this have anything to do with the political shadow play of uh, daily politics that we get fed on the nightly news? Is that really reflective of the way the world is being run? My 16 plus years of research now tends to indicate that is not the case, that we are being shown the shadows on the cave wall and being asked to talk about that, but don't ever look behind you and see what is generating those shadows. Right. And now we're seeing, uh, I just finished listening to a farmer talking about all the things that they're doing to stop the processing and creating and growing of food. So that's the next bizarro world thing that, and you know, I was sitting beside Dr. Byron Bridal. He's a Canadian doctor. You may have heard of him and he's such a hero. Um, and he says, you know, what we faced with the vaccines was bad, but he leaned over to me and he said, but this terrifies me. Them stopping food slowly, consistently, all of these trains blowing up, all these food processing plants suddenly being on fire, all the fires in Alberta right now, um, just weirdness. Uh, kill your livestock because there's you were afraid there's going to be some, you know, outbreak of whatever. And then they want to vaccinate as well um, in the future, the mRNA shots into to animals. So we have a terrible um, thing you know, kind of happening. But I know you did feel there's some positive things. Um, that would be wonderful to hear. <laughs> yes. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. And I just parenthetically, I've mentioned, I've talked about all the things you're talking about. I read a, I wrote a three-part series earlier this year on what is the future of food. I've talked about the future food false flag, talking about those types of incidents of uh, food processing facility explosions and fires and other such things. Uh, I've talked about the mRNA injections. So yes, absolutely. Uh, for livestock, I should say. So yes, uh, there's a lot to go into with that agenda. And if you are what you eat, then why are they trying to make us eat Z bugs as another right. um, interesting part of the, the agenda, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to talk about there. On the positive side, I would say that uh, what we are, uh, part, part of what the Great Awakening, I think, should be about, I think is about just uh, as part of the natural process, is people coming to realize that, oh, perhaps this treating the, the politics as, as the reality rather than the shadows on the cave wall, and perhaps mm -hmm. rather than just watching the show and munching our popcorn and treating life as a spectator sport, maybe that isn't going to work out for us. And maybe we're going to be engineered into an entire 
institutional process that is going to essentially move us down this conveyor belt towards the transhuman digital ID dystopian nightmare where we're eating bugs and uh, and basically Hunger games. being fattened up before we get slaughtered. Yeah. Um, so if we want to avoid that, I mean, the first part is the realization, the true understanding of the nature of what we're facing. Once we truly understand the problem in its complexity, I think the solution starts to become more apparent. If we are being fed into this centralized, controlled, top-down, hierarchical system where a Trudeau or whoever gets into that position of power, really a political mouthpiece, puppet piece for the, the financiers and others who are really make, pulling the strings. But at any rate, when someone gets into that position, they can dictate and uh, entire swaths of people can be affected by their decisions. Well, then clearly we have to be starting to build up the grassroots communities that are uh, the exact opposite, the exact opposite of that top-down hierarchical control. We have to be um, thinking about how can we form communities of interest among each other where we can cooperate with each other to form alternative systems um, alternative systems of trading, alternative ideas for health, healthcare that doesn't involve mandates from some po political figure or what have you, alternative ideas for um, sourcing our food, for example, et cetera, et cetera. We have to start building out these community systems that are not reliant on that centralized uh, system of control, which is not just a tall order, it's almost a mind-bogglingly vast order, gi given how far down the road we are towards this centralized system. What? You mean food doesn't grow in a supermarket? I don't, wh where does it come from? How can we possibly start thinking about it in other ways? So it is an overwhelming process at first. I think it will involve finding, meeting, coming together with like-minded people, which should be easier now, now that we are in this great awakening, we start to see who are the people who resisted what was going on and who spoke up about it. Those, but maybe those are my type of people and we can start coming together and finding ways that we can start doing things for ourselves. This is a huge, ultimately probably generational process that we're engaged in. And I don't know if we have generations of time, but at the very least, I know that if we just keep continuing going along with the status quo as it's being presented to us, it's, as I say, it's the conveyor belt towards the transhuman dystopian nightmare future. And I want to get off of that. I think there are other people who want to get off of that conveyor belt. I hope those people will come together and start helping each other to it doesn't have to be all at once. It doesn't have to be completely 100% overnight. Suddenly you're off the grid and off the system. But at any rate, we can start building up the communities that will see us through these incredibly trying times that we're about to come into. I was driving down a road and I saw somebody was selling uh, eggs, you know, free range eggs uh, just out of their backyard. And I'm like, I'm noting where this is <laughs> because I might need to go get my eggs there one day. You know, like you're so right. That's so brilliant. We have to find our community. Um, final question to you, is Japan uh, the same as we're going through in North America? Like, what are you seeing in a totally different country? It's the same, but different. Um, I think this plays out differently in every corner of the world uh, that with its own particular cultural uh, particularities and what have you. So the, I would say politically, the conversation is quite a bit different over here in Japan than it would be in Canada or the US or other Western countries right now. And there isn't as much of the divide on partisan grounds and, and uh, things along those nature. Um, but ultimately, this is a global agenda. And it really does reach into every corner of the planet right now. And so I don't think there is any escaping it. And um, it just plays out differently in different places. But for example, I mean, here in Japan, um, now, the, the fear and the 
hype is being put up around the next big war that we're all going to be asked to submit our sons and daughters to go fight um, for the the purposes of the war machine against the scary Chinese boogeyman, who I'm certainly no fan of communist China and what they do to their people. But I think they're just going to be a template that ultimately Trudeau's government and every government around the world would actively eagerly adopt if given the chance. Maybe we can start looking for ideas that are completely counter. At any rate, Japanese people are being primed for that type of um, scenario. They're being primed for the ultimate erosion of food sovereignty um, as the Japanese aging population starts to become more and more um, urbanized uh, as the agrarian rural population is generally now comprised of octogenarians and up, nonagenarians, hundred year old plus people um, that are not being replaced by young people. There are some significant problems that Japan is facing in the near future and that are going to affect the country demographically, economically, geopolitically, and otherwise. So yeah, I think the problems are, 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 are certainly pervasive around the globe. Um, it may play out differently, may look differently in different places, but uh, I certainly don't think that there's a, a, some country that people can escape to where they can get around this agenda. Wow. Well, as always, you are fascinating, and we could probably spend a couple hours uh, just talking through. We haven't even gotten into if the currencies are going to collapse, but um, I just I appreciate so much your research that you're fighting for us from, from Japan. I, I really appreciate that. And I also love the extent to which you go to reveal the truth. And you're very courageous. And I know you've probably paid quite a price for that and continue to. But um, we just thank you so very, very much for being one of the most courageous people we know and for helping us to learn about our world so that we make good decisions. I appreciate your time today, sir. And uh, I hope that we can do this again really soon. I appreciate you having me on to talk about what I think are the most important issues we're facing. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. Thank you. We'll see you again. I really enjoyed that. And I could have probably spent another hour talking to Mr. Corbett, but um, fascinating. Let's have him on again really soon, as soon as he can. He's a very busy guy and he's creating these documentaries and writing about things that are very important to us. Um, yeah, and people should support him. Um, he's listener-funded, just like us. Um, you know, hey, if you could send us a little and send him a little, that'd be nice. Uh, on So it's the Corbett Report, and um, and he's worth it. You know, I, I really believe this is our new place to support. I mean, a lot of people are not even going to churches anymore, so maybe part of what uh, you do is you support the people that are telling the, the God's honest truth right now. So we hope to be that person, um, you know, in that group for you every single day, bringing you powerful information that will help you.